think the reason it's like we say is an old problem or a new problem and the answer is yes it's a little bit like i've used this metaphor of you know the web telescope that's now like really far out past the moon and we're seeing things that are have always been there in the galaxy but we never had the technology to find them so i think indecision on the one hand is like that Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Matt Dixon and Ted McKenna. Matt is the co-author of The Challenger Sale, The Challenger Customer, and a founding partner at DCM Insights. Ted McKenna is also a founding partner at DCM Insights, and along with Matt Dixon, the co-author of their new book, which we're talking about today, The Jolt Effect, How High Performers Overcome Customer Indecision. So as I said, we, Matt and Ted and I, we dig into the new book today. We dig into that sort of perennial sales challenge. It was just how do we overcome the customer's status quo? But we also dig into whether the status quo is really the issue or are sellers just not giving buyers a compelling reason to buy? Because what is happening when the customer agrees that the status quo is unacceptable, but they still don't make a decision to change? What's going on? So we get into all of this and much, much more. Be sure you stick around for the entire conversation. But before we get to Matt and Ted, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's jump into it. Matt, Ted, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy, thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. So we're going to talk about your new book, The Jolt Effect. But before we do, let's have some little introductions. Matt, why don't you lead off and tell us about you and what you do, and then Ted will follow. Sure. Uh, so I am a, a researcher by trade. I'm a founding right now, a founding partner of a firm. Uh, Ted is one of my co-founders, along with a, our third partner, a guy named Rory Channer. The three of us uh, cut our teeth in sales research at a company called CEB, CEB. Um, where we spent I spent almost 20 years, um, uh, and we uh, all worked together in the sales and marketing practice, actually, is how we got to know each other. Uh, that company was sold to Gardner Group in 2017, and then we kind of went off in, in different directions. In fact, one of the Ted and I actually rejoined, um, or joined up together again at a machine learning company um, out of Austin, Texas, uh, where we spent uh, about three and a half years, a company called Tether. That's actually the technology mm -hmm. we used to do the research in the new book. And yeah, not to underplay the fact you were one of the co-authors of the Challenger sale and the Challenger customer and so on. So uh, yeah, bona fides well-established. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt and I, we, uh, we we sort of debate whether we should tell people how long we've known each other and how long we've been researching. Uh, it makes, makes it show, sound kind of old, but... No, on this uh, show, you've, you've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> Older than both. Yes, yeah. So both longtime uh, researchers, sales and, and customer experience. And I think to Matt's point on the... Uh, on the research we did for the latest book, um, spent a lot of time with conversation intelligence and and looking at millions of sales conversations as well. And so we've seen it all, I think, <laughs> along the spectrum in terms of the good, and good the bad. bad and yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's let's talk about the book. Uh, it's titled "The Jolt Effect: How High Performers Overcome Customer Indecision." And you've I mean, not to you know, over be overly simplistic about, it, but you've identified you know, customer indecision as the big challenge for sellers to, to deal with and uh, say that, hey, the way that they were then training people to deal with it is completely wrong. Well, I'd say um, I, I let me I put it this way. I I cut uh, 
I think I still bear the scars from the challenger experience of <laughs> like declaring things as completely wrong. But but I, I will say as air quotes around it, maybe. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I would say um, not, I would say incomplete. How about that, Andy? So um, <laughs> no, I, I would go with completely wrong. But yeah. Okay. Right. Completely wrong. Fair enough. Uh, you heard it from Andy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> By the way, not, not <laughs> embarrassed to say. It. We'll, we'll probably touch on that as we go through. So. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, no, I'm happy to happy to give you a kind of a high level on that if that would be Yeah, so well, tell us what was, what was the impetus to write the book? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the impetus was um, one of, of pure nerddom, which is and, – and I'm speaking more for Ted than for myself, but um, <laughs> uh, the <laughs> – Daggers. Yeah. So we – you remember uh, March of 2020, Andy? We all remember that yes. uh, time. It was a dark time and we were, we were doing things like scratching for toilet paper and watching Tiger King and, and yep. fun stuff like that. But uh, Ted and I were working at this company we mentioned before, Tether, uh, out of Austin, Texas, conversation intelligence company that developed a really powerful machine learning platform for taking unstructured data, like recorded sales conversations, mm-hmm. and bringing meaning to them and being able to study them at scale. So Ted and I looked at each other and said, holy smokes, this is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, we may never see this again, where we have an opportunity to study sales um, through recorded uh, phone conversations. Because remember, sales went 100% virtual in, a, in the blink of an eye. It, I think Zoom and Teams and, and stuff like that had been on a slow march upward in terms of the percentage of the sale it started to consume, or that happened virtually. But in March of 2020, it was like, boom, mm-hmm. everything was virtual. The mundane calls, the really critical calls, the negotiation conversations, the calls of procurement, everything was on Zoom. And so we went out, recruited a few dozen companies, uh, and harvested from those companies about two and a half million uh, recorded sales conversations and transcribed them into text and then used um, uh, Tether's machine learning platform uh, to study them. Now, uh, what I would say is that's a big data set. So there's lots of different mm-hmm. things we could have gone after. But the question that Ted and I were really intrigued by was this question of the no decision loss. So right. this is the customer who's gone through the entire sales process with you, who sta- who's stated their intent to move forward with you, has given the salesperson happy ears, and then suddenly kind of goes dark, disengages, um, goes radio silent, gets cold right. feet, and Ghosts. you know we mark Ghosts you. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And eventually we mark them as closed, lost, no decision, but um, never really know why. And you know what's interesting is that we had been kind of charting this. Ted and I spent a lot of time out there with chief sales officers and at conferences and just uh, folks in our networks and kind of always asking them what um, – where do you where do you see the insight lacking in terms of what um, what are the questions you have around what best salespeople are doing differently? And this one started to kind of creep up in the the question rank, if you will. Uh, people saying, you know, I we're still like we're doing the challenger thing. We're, we're training people and, and coaching people to do the things we we thought would be uh, effective in terms of avoiding those no decision losses. But we just keep see the per, seeing the percentage of those losses creep up over you know year over year. Mm. And then you fast forward to like now and it's going through the roof with the the economy about to hit the skids. So what's funny is that when we first saw the data actually, even before we really knew why we were seeing what we were seeing is you could see in the data way more losses than we expected to start with. But then also even within those losses, you saw kind of good things happening and yet they were still losing. So customers excited about mm-hmm. a product or excited about potential purchase and the, and the sales rep even doing things you would expect them to do to get the customer to be excited about it mm-hmm. and yet still turning into a loss. So that was a little bit of a head scratcher until we started to examine indecision more and understand more about what might be driving those types of losses specifically with respect to no decision. Right. So generally, when people think about the no decision, they think about, oh, 
it's a decision to stick with the status quo. But Correct. what you're saying is, look, this is not about sticking with the status quo. This is something else altogether. This is yeah. we want to change, but we're afraid to basically. It- yeah, I I think that's well I think it's well said. Certainly um, more succinctly than I'm going to say. So the, what I what I, what I would say to next time we come, he'll to take you your first shorter version we, and give you a longer version. Here we yeah, go. Yeah. I'll pay you royalties on it, Andy. <laughs> so yeah, we. Uh, so I think in a nutshell, you're right. They, so the if we rewind tape, we look back on the past. I don't know several decades of, of uh, sales guidance, uh, books and um, guidance from speakers and coaches and trainers and pass on from leaders to managers to reps for, for a long time now in sales has always been that customer who says they want to move forward, but then gets cold feet and starts to ghost you and disengage. It is because they're still in the vice grip of the status quo. And so you haven't broken the customer's preference for the status quo. And, and, and you know, we talk about this in Challenger as well, that challengers are actually very good at showing the customer mm-hmm. that the pain of same is actually worse than the pain of change. They're very good at breaking the hold that the status quo has on the customer. And we know that hold is very powerful. But the, the guidance that, that sales leaders and managers have given reps for a long time is, effectively, you've got to dial up the FOMO. So it, whether it's, you know, Andy, you must, you're really going to miss out on this golden opportunity to buy our solution and generate outsized ROI, cost savings, revenue generation, risk mitigation, whatever it is, you're going to miss out. Uh, if you don't act, or it could be, um, I try to make you squirm a little bit by pointing out how you're losing ground to your competitors and create that burning platform, right? Like, remember you, Andy, you told me how much your employees really hate you for making you use that platform. You know, that problem's not going to go away. They're still going to hate you after you decide not to move forward. Right. And then when, when that doesn't work, usually you see the salespeople um, do the, you've got the carrot stick, the carrot approach, the stick approach, and then the disappearing carrot act, which is like the 10% (laughs) discount. That's only good this quarter, you know? Um, Well, I mean, the, the general sort of rule of thumb, I think, with yeah, no decision was double down on what you're doing, right? I mean, it's, yeah, uh, in uh, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you run into an obstacle, yeah. sell harder. Yeah, persuade <laughs> yeah, harder. Yeah. yeah. So I haven't fully persuaded you. That must be yeah. the problem. And yes. so let me go back to re-persuade you. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and so those, are, I would. Th- I would say those are all versions of like dialing up the fear of missing out. Like here's the cost sure. of your inaction, whether it's your competitors are going to leave you in the dust and your employees are going to still hate you tomorrow when you decide not to pass on this golden opportunity, or you're just going to miss out on a discount window that's closing. It's all versions of FOMO. And what we found is right. we we analyze the data. What we find is that it's it's actually not the fear of missing out. It's actually the fear of messing up, as you yes. said before, Andy, that that that's the thing that keeps customers from moving forward. In fact, if we looked at no decision losses, we actually did this this math that uh, about uh, 50, I think it was uh, 44% of them were because the customer actually still was kind of uh, uh, leaning towards the status quo. They still prefer the status quo. You hadn't quite convinced them to move forward with your solution, that yours was a, a preferable state uh, to move to that it was a superior alternative to the mm-hmm. status quo. 56% of the time, it was be- not because of that. It was like, I'm, I'm sold. The status quo stinks. Your solution's way better. I think it's a top priority for us, but I'm worried about messing up. And there were three specific things we found that customers get wrapped around the axle about. The first one, the three things they're worried about messing up. The first one right. was picking the wrong thing. Right. So especially in B2B, when we look think about all these, the permutations of our solution, the bells and whistles, the, the integrations, the contract lengths, the you know, roll it out narrow, short, uh, broad across the enterprise, whatever it is, there's so many options we put in front of the customer. And it's the customer feeling like, 
I might choose the wrong one. Maybe it's the thing I took out of the shopping cart I didn't include in the proposal was the thing we really should have bought. Right. And then I've got egg, egg on my face because I bought the wrong thing. Um, the second source, uh, the th- second thing they're worried about messing up is um, and not doing enough homework. So it's that lack of information. They're feeling like it's the next white paper I did. It's the one I didn't right. read that had all right. the answers on how to be a smart consumer. And then the third sor- third thing they're worried about messing up is uh, they're worried that they haven't gotten any assurance of success. So we call this outcome uncertainty. They're feeling like it's not that they feel like you're going to take their money and run, but rather that they're not going to get the ROI you actually projected. And maybe it's not even your fault. It's their fault as a, as sure. a customer. But they're just, if they don't get that ROI, then the, then the customer's got to answer to the CFO or whoever they made the business case to why that didn't come to pass. And best case scenario, they have egg on their face or look like a fool, but worst case scenario, they could lose their job. You know, and if I were to sum it up in a very simple way, I'd think about this, that in the grand scheme of things, the customer cares a lot less than miss, about missing out on a discount or an opportunity to fix the status quo. They care a lot more about losing their job or losing credibility or face within their yeah. company. And so we, what we've got to do is dial down that FOMU. We've got to not just break the pull of the status quo. That's always important. That's why I'd say it's the, the understanding is not totally wrong. It's, it's incomplete because we still got to do that. We're not going to sell anything if we don't break the hold of the status quo, but then we've got to um, overcome their indecision because that's what starts to creep into their mind. Once they agree, the status quo stinks. We're ready to move forward with you. They start worrying about, did I pick the right thing? Have I done enough homework? Do I have any assurance of success? And that's what we got to deal with next. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Mm -hmm. So first question that came to mind as I was reading the book was, okay, I buy the part on the indecision, but is it any different than it's ever been? Mm. Because without the the availability of the data in the past, isn't it always? Could have always been there. Yeah. Always been there. And that's my experience has been, and I've sold large systems, you know, seven, eight, something in nine figure deals for you know, big companies around the world. Yeah. The indecision, it was the status quo was never the issue. If they were investing that much time with us to get to a point of, of making a decision about something that's that expensive, that complex, that mission critical, it wasn't the status quo. Mm-hmm. It was the indecision that was mm-hmm. the problem. And so I just wonder whether we're just able to may see this and make it visible at a, when it wasn't really visible before. And I think people sort of, you know, sort of lazily fall into this idea of, oh, it's always the status quo. Ted, Ted you, uh, we, we talk yeah. about this one a lot. <laughs> we're Why don't you we're take both smiling because, yeah, because we, and we've asked others about this too, yeah. you know, do, is this a new problem or an old problem? And the answer we, says, yes, we think, the and everyone's, yeah, the answer is always <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I think, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, like indecision, it is a very human problem and it's not necessarily a new thing. This is something that we as consumers and customers alike um, uh, deal with and have dealt with for a long time. And I think it is true, though, that we're just better at seeing it now. We're using mm-hmm. technology, um, AI and ML as a way to surface right. objections and, and uncertainties and frustrations that maybe we as as individuals and within sales conversations just can't pick up on and the machine is picking up on it. And so I think there is there's certainly some truth to it. But I think it's also true that, to your point, it has been around for quite a while. I think the question, though, is how have we dealt with it? You know, so so yes, it, it, it existed in the minds of buyers, but sellers more often than not would interpret or maybe misinterpret that 
to your point earlier, as always a status quo problem. Matt talks about like we have one hammer and every, every problem is a nail that I'm just looking to keep going back to that, that well. And so while it might be true that instinctively we knew it wasn't always exactly the status quo, we treated it as if it was every time. And so that's kind of what we're picking up on. I I also think that I would, I would just, just start to jump in there, uh, Andy, but I would add to what Ted says. I think, I think the reason is like when you say it's an old problem or a new problem and the answer is yes. Yeah, I think Ted's right. It's it's a little bit like um, I've used this metaphor of you know the Webb telescope that's now like really far out past the moon, mm-hmm. and we're seeing things that are in the, have always been there in the galaxy, but we never right. had the technology to find them. So I think indecision, on the one hand, is like that, but I think on the other hand, if you look at the things that are driving indecision, so you look at the number of options. Every supplier in the market is increasing the number of options or putting you know different versions of your platform, more integrations, more roadmap items, more bells and whistles, like let a thousand flowers bloom, which amps up the the customer's fear that they haven't picked the right thing. Yep. The second thing, information. Uh, information in any market or in, around any technology or any use case is going up and up and up in dramatic ways. And the customer can physically not consume it all, but that increases their fear that it's the thing they didn't consume that has all the answers. And then the outcome uncertainty too. Sure. So most vendors are on a, on a journey from selling simple products um, to more complex, sticky, risky, disruptive, and expensive solutions, which increases that outcome uncertainty. You know, there's now this is now a big deal. Like if this goes south, this is on me. Um, and increases that fear. So I think in some ways, those things are driven by secular trends. So I would argue, yes, it's always been there, but I do think today it's it's worse than it was five, 10 years ago. And I'd argue the next two years is about to get a lot worse. Okay. I got to think about that part. I mean, I think, you know, I think maybe some of the, <laughs> some of what we see is, you know, when I started sales, mm-hmm. the way customers dealt with uncertainty is they bought IBM. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, when I started, nobody ever got fired, right? Selling computer <laughs> yeah. systems and IBM had 80% yeah. of the market share. Uh, it's pretty easy for customers. Yeah. Those that didn't have indecision bought from me. Those that had the indecision uh, bought from IBM. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I think it was, if you, I think when you come up in that environment, it was just, you have this different perspective on it, right? Um, yeah. yeah. The thing about choice, though, that's sort of, Interesting in, in the bounty of information because I don't know I'm a sort of big adherent to Herbert Simon and the theory of bounded mm-hmm. rationality it says look mm-hmm. people have these constraints everybody has constraints oh, yeah. to make decisions right they got yeah. limited access to time limited access to perfect information and limited time to understand it basically yeah um, yeah and so they make the good enough decision. That's right. Well, you heard, mm-hmm. I think it was Herbert Simon who coined the maximizers versus satisfiers well, kind of concept, right? right? So, yeah. And, 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 and but, but what's interesting. Satisfice, though, yeah. sort of the penalty for being wrong is less than it is. your maximizer. I, yeah, I think that's true. And I think you're 100% right that that idea of bounded rationality, like there's there's only so much you could consume. Right. And so we're forced, by definition, there is no such thing as a pure maximizer play. We're right. all forced to be satisfizers. But I think what's interesting is it doesn't stop customers from trying to be maximizers, to be. you know? That's right. So yeah. that's, the, that's the wrinkle well, is they I mean, feel like they, you know. <laughs> but that's, I wonder if they, they are, because I mean, it's, and this is, you know, you guys got the research, so I'm not questioning the research, yeah. but I just, you know, there's research done, um, Author Simonson Rosen, this book called Absolute Value, which I read a few years yep. ago. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that, but they make a pretty compelling argument that actually, contrary to people thinking that that buyers are overwhelmed by information, that actually they become pretty adept at navigating 
the sources of information and become pretty mm-hmm. adept at doing so. And, and then almost like this idea of overwhelm is almost something we're putting on people more so than they actually feel. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I don't, you know, uh, the, our data would suggest that they're pretty overwhelmed. And we found that um, uh, it was almost 90%. I think you remember this data point from the book, but we found that almost 90% of the sales conversa- conversations, two and a half million of them, were with customers demonstrating either moderate or high levels of indecision. Mm-hmm. That indecision, a function of the emotions that are, per, you know, um, point to either I'm unsure what to pick. This all looks good to me, and therefore I, you know, I don't, I don't know which way to move forward. Right. I'm still consuming information. I feel like I'm not an expert, or I don't. This is a really risky decision, and I have no, no. You, I'm. It's not. I'm. It's not clear to me that you have my back, or you give me a safety net here. So, so it's interesting. I, I think my suspicion is that there probably are. I think you know, uh, Brent Adamson wrote about this in the sense making article, and I think there are companies who are doing some good work to structure that learning so that the information overload problem is less of a problem. Though I think those companies are probably still in the minority in terms of creating those, you know, I think deal it, rooms it, or it, learning journeys. Sure. Depends a little bit on on how that overwhelming manifests. Right. So it might be true that just because they're empowered with so much information, they can find so much uh, data and information on third-party sites or your, even your website that they may be. E- it may be easier for them to feel like they can come to conclusion about who should be in the consideration set, what products am I excited about, and even being able to exclude others from the consideration set. So they can come to a decision about if I buy from anyone, I buy from you. But they can still feel very overwhelmed and it manifests in, you know, tell me more about the experiences it's going to have. Is, the, is it going to match the promise? And do I need to sort of understand every single page in your user guide before I'm willing to, to move forward? Just because there is so much information, they expect more information. And then they get right. sort of very sort of easily um, fall into this trap of analysis paralysis. But one thing Simon wrote about as well, though, is this idea that, that when people start to feel overwhelmed that they actually do again a reasonably good job of uh, sort of winnowing things down by making a decision about what's worth their time or what's not worth their time or what he called it what's worth their attention don't you think people sort of do that 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 you know you come into a space where yeah we could talk to 10 vendors and this will lead to a second question and they're all they're all virtually the same Right. I mean, take conversational mm-hmm. intelligence as, as a yep. space. I mean, there's a ton of vendors there. Right. How do you how sure. do you as a yeah. is don't customers start from the beginning sort of start making choices about. Yeah, I looked at that website. Yeah, there's nothing there that's helping me. I'm not going to go back there anymore. I talked to the salesperson. No value in my time with them. I'm winning, winnowing them away. Aren't, aren't people sort of doing that as opposed to saying, yeah, I'm constantly exposing myself to the universe of information? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think there's. I think there is a lot of that that happens. Um, you know, remember we we talked about in uh, the challenger sale that the uh, the average customer is like fifty seven percent of the way through the purchase journey before they ever engage with the salesperson. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is happening during that learning journey. I've gone from the hundred conversation intelligence vendors down to the three I really need to talk to, and now I've got kind of a sense of what we're looking for. What are the use cases? The integrations mm-hmm. that are important to us. The price we want to pay. You know who's got the reputation, who's where on the Gartner Magic Quadrant, all that good stuff. Right. And I might even go from that to start engaging with, uh, go through an RFP in a formal way or an informal way, and then pick who's the one I want to work with. But even then, it's looking at like, okay, let's say I pick, 
you know, I pick a gong, for instance, or, or a chorus, uh, and I'm looking say, at these different... On this show, Revenue.io, by the way. Oh, Revenue.io. <laughs> I pick a Revenue.io. <laughs> but you still look at the many different ways to... So do I want everyone to have access to this? Do I want a small group? Do I start with a pilot group? Do I, want a, mm-hmm. I can get a better deal with a five-year contract, but a three-year contract provides more flexibility that we can get out of it if this thing doesn't work out. Work out. What kind of assurance is baked in? Do we need the professional services? Is there other contract structuring or, or have we done anything to mitigate the risk that we won't see the returns of the benefits that you know revenue.io is projecting you know so there are all still all of these concerns that the customer has i think about- look no further than the expectations that now exist about free trials and pocs mm-hmm. and the expectation that i get that free experience why right. else would you be asking for it unless you didn't right. trust that that what you're telling me is true yeah yeah it's true and i guess the ultimate the ultimate evidence would be you know, the scoreboard still suggests that you know for, we found forty to six percent of deals wind up in no decision, largely because of that indecision, which is a function of those three fears of messing up. So I think you're right that uh, it is it is a little bit confounding that people don't do this stuff, or you would think that people do this stuff, yet still they end up getting wrapped yeah. around the axle. Well, we didn't say it was problems. rational. We didn't say it was rational. No, no, no. It's totally <laughs> irrational. <laughs> so well, but I mean that is, and it's very annoying actually. <laughs> so. Uh, Right. And you would think to some degree, and I was trying to think this through yeah, yeah. last night, and I didn't get through it, so we'll think it through here on the show, is, is is this made, is the indecision made easier to deal with or harder by the fact that in so many market segments, there are so many competitors, basically the products are commodities with you know very thin differences between them. Hmm. Uh, does that make it easier for a decision maker or harder for a decision maker? I, th- I think harder I think, for sure. I think, well, right? yeah, I, I think you can go, yeah. I th- I'd say I, that's one where you say, pick, you take that side of it, I'll take the other one. I think you could argue either <laughs> side because I, sure. I think Ted was, so why do you think it's harder? Um, yeah. and I'll, I, cause so I partly I think, agree. Matt, but, you can take the other side. Ted, you start. All right, I'll think about it while he goes. Well, I think, <laughs> I think you could, you could take it from a number of different angles and why it's harder. I mean, so, so for one, with every, I, I take the point we made earlier about information for every new potential vendor, that's a new way in which I can think about skinning this cat. And, and now it's, it's which one do I sort of engage with first and next and, and how does this fit into my tech stack? Right. So I think that's another thing that's different than maybe 30, 40 years ago when I'm buying just from IBM, every additional vendor on top of this tech stack is that much harder to then justify and say, look, the sure. CFO is upset about that last purchase. How how now can I can I make sure I don't have egg in my face? Because the last one, I mean, who hasn't been oversold before, you know, <laughs> within somewhere in that tech stack at some point. So I think all these well, things add up over time. There's there's yeah. more purchase regret when you've bought more of these things, right? Or more potential for more purchase right. regret. Right. But Matt, you're gonna take the other side of the argument? No, I, I yeah, I mean I think you could argue that so with so many different providers in any given space, and you, um, uh, you know, we talked about conversation intelligence, and but in all of these spaces, there's so many different competitors, and they start to bleed together, and they feel like a, they're kind of all flavors of the same thing. Right. I think on the one hand, it makes things like uh, outcome uncertainty maybe feel a little bit less daunting because there's so much now, so many players and so many users, mm-hmm. and there's so much documentation and understanding about how people actually get value out of this. The, the road is very well trodden. Hmm. You know where all the pitfalls and landmines are. I think on the other hand, it makes the um, you know the lack of information problem actually worse because then you – and we hear this from people where they they're, they say, yes, I want to depart from the status quo. Yes, we want to talk to you. And then we get, we're, we're moving towards a decision and then it's, Hey, you know, Andy, I'm so sorry. I was, 
our colleague just came back from a conference and he ran into a couple of other vendors who we weren't even aware of these mm. folks that they do the same thing. We got to talk to, we want to leave no stone unturned. Well, I still want to work with you guys, but we need to demo their product first. Just make sure we're not missing anything. So it's like that, that I think because there's so little daylight, I think what Ted's saying is um, that part of it, I think becomes harder is to actually tell the difference between one provider well, you know, and one you know solution what's interesting? and another. When subscription, when SaaS was sort of rolling out as the new thing, right? The the intention, or at least one of the big selling points, was it going to lower the risk for companies, right? You don't have to have big fixed costs right at the beginning. You can mm-hmm. pay as you go and so forth. But I think what's happened is this glut of subscriptions now makes people even reticent to get the next subscription, <laughs> you know, because there's sort of too much, there's fatigue around subscriptions too. So again, it plays multiple ways. Well, that's an interesting point too, that, and I agree with that. And I, that interesting point Matt made is, is, hadn't really thought about is that if the more commodity like products become within a sector is, does it actually encourage people to be maximizers in terms of, Oh yeah, there's two new people we didn't look at before. We should look at them. Yeah. Yeah. As as opposed to saying, yeah, look at the website and they're just like our rails. I, uh, my, uh, so, uh, I, I had this, um, very pedestrian, but um, uh, but kind of telling experience yesterday in the grocery store where my wife sent me to go get uh, – we're having lasagna and she wanted these um, uh, no-cook lasagna mm-hmm. noodles, like the ones yep. you don't boil and you just – you know it's yeah, no a boiler, miracle. Yep. They, they didn't have those when I was a kid, but, uh, but they have them now and I walk in and there's like 10 different kinds. Yeah. And I don't know. Like I don't have any preference for one brand or the other and I'm looking at them and I'm like, what's the cook time and like – you know, I have no idea, and they're different prices. But this one's like five dollars more than the other one. Like, is it that much better? Like, maybe I should just get this. But then, no, she might be mad at me because I. So I just sat there for like fifteen minutes staring at all these like. Oh, so, yeah. which I say in the in the dedication, my my family finds it supremely ironic that I wrote a book on how to make decisions. Yeah. Well, but <laughs> so. I mean, that's like the example from you know Barry Schwartz's book, The Paradox of Choice. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. How many jellies are there now? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. The jelly experiment. or salad dressings, I guess. I mean, yeah. it's like. Yeah, too many. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, so point we sort of touched on didn't really cover those is in the face of indecision though is the as you call them the time honored sales tactics that have been passed on from generation to generation, yep. oral tradition, so on. Yep. Actually, counterproductive to get yeah. into the defense. So why why don't these work? Well, what first of all, what are they and why don't they work? Yeah. So, but uh, before we talked about the, you know, those techniques being the, you know, go back, if you will, and you remember in Challenger, we talked about getting the customer from the A state to the B state, you know, the way they do things, say to the new way forward. Um, And so technique number one is go back and reemphasize all the benefits of the B state. Like, Andy, you must have missed how many zeros there were on that ROI calculation. Let me me take you back in the platform and show you all the cool stuff. You must have blinked when I showed you this really awesome feature, you know. Um, The the other is break down the A, right, which is make you squirm about your status quo and and how bad it is and the missing out on this huge opportunity and you're going to be left holding the bag. Um, and then, and then there's also like the disappearing urgency driver, right? Mm. Uh, implementation window that you got to buy now, or we can't install your system for six more Excellent. months yep. today with supply chain issues. You know, we only have X number in stock and don't know when we'll get it back in stock. Uh, and then disappearing discounts too, as a, as an urgency driver. But those are, I think those are all versions of, of kind of FOMO. And, but to your point, what we actually found is um, it wasn't just that they were ineffective, it's that they were counterproductive. They were with customers who had stated their intent to move forward. It turned out that uh, it had an 84% probability using those tactics, you had an 84% probability of actually 
making it more likely the customer would do nothing, not less likely, <laughs> which is which is a total head scratcher, right? Because it's the thing we've been telling people to do. That's the only reason they're not moving forward is you haven't broken the gravitational pull of the status quo. So how does this stuff not not work to do so? And I think Ted put it, uh, you put it well uh, when we were going through the research, said, if I were to simplify why it doesn't work, it's because you're using scare tactics to sell to somebody who's already afraid. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's really what we're talking about. Now, you're, if your customer's worried that they haven't picked the right thing, they haven't done enough homework, and they haven't really gotten any assurance of success, and you're hammering about a disappearing discount or creating this burning platform about the status quo, it's like, I know, but I'm worried about this other stuff. And so, you know, it, it comes across as tone deaf at the very least. And in the in worst case, it just gives your customer, again, more to be worried about, which then mires them in indecision, makes it very unlikely they move forward. Yeah, well, I mean, as again, as I'm going through your book, it, it <laughs> reminded me of a line that I, I wrote in my last book, which is, for the most part, customers buy from you in spite of you, not because of you. <laughs> <laughs> Sad truth. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, that's depressing, but probably true. <laughs> right? And I think it's, it's generally true. I mean, yeah. in an environment yeah. we're in, where we've got such low win rates across the board, especially in the software mm-hmm. world, that's exactly what's happening. You know, people mm-hmm. are basically holding their noses and making a decision. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, again, as Ted said, depressing, but true. Yeah. <laughs> so. Which is, yeah, a cycle trying to help people break out of. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. How horrible. I mean, I never felt that way when I was, <laughs> when I was selling, it was a different environment. Uh, but yeah, you can, no wonder people are feeling burnt out and you know, uninspired yeah. and changing jobs frequently looking for something interesting to do because on a day-to-day basis, they're just not very good at it. Yeah, I mean, I will say though, in the in the, I think that's largely true, right? And and um, what I'm about about to say probably makes it even more so true because when you look at average performers, I think that probably is true. I think the silver lining, of course, and what Matt and I do spend a lot of time doing is studying what high performers are doing right. differently. Mm-hmm. So we're not just like making these things up or observing what people out there in the field today are already doing, which means that some people at least are getting this right. It's just not enough of us. Yeah. Well, but it raises the question, you know, on a broader scale is, yeah, I mean, it's just like Challenger. I mean, I, I was challenging, you know, 20 years Mm -hmm. before you wrote the book, Um, but I didn't find that you could really train people on it. Hmm. I mean, it was, there's people that could do it and people that couldn't. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It's a funny thing about, um, you know, I think Challenger's different in a couple of respects. I, I think the first thing you said, Andy, is, is spot on is that, um, you know, we always tell people this with Challenger, like we didn't invent this, like people like Andy invented this. We just gave a name to it. You know, we didn't, this is what great salespeople had figured out was the winning approach to selling, especially to information empowered customers. You got to bring new ideas. Don't focus think, less on asking them. With what, Challenger though, just to insert that though, mm-hmm. is I think Challenger, and this is my contention, is, is people who are good at it is more about who they are as opposed to what they know. Well, it's interesting. It's so this is, um, so you know, if we train. go back to the, well, if we, it, it, I wouldn't make light of that. I think it is. Um, but I, if we go back to, um, and I think Jolt's a little bit different in a couple of respects, which I'll speak to, but if you go back to the research around challenger, you know, we specifically designed the study to avoid personality. There's a lot of personality based studies of sales effectiveness and those are, you know, you're born with it or you're not, it's a hiring and firing decision. And we try to focus on the things with that, with the, the right, training and coaching and support from the organization, the average seller can get better at, mm-hmm. uh, and they can develop these skills. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, and it, it where it falls apart, though, I think is probably three, this is Challenger. 
Sure. Three areas. I think one is um, people opting out of the journey because for will reasons, not skill reasons. So looking at that and saying, I don't want to sell that way. Like I don't like want to come in and and you know poke my customer in the eye with a, an insight. I don't want to say anything provocative. I like taking orders. I like mm-hmm. asking how high when they ask me to jump. Like that's the way I sell. Right. Um, so there, people opt out for will reasons. I think the second thing that falls apart in Challenger is. Um, that the company hasn't invested in creating the commercial insights. And as we often say, if you're trying to challenge without anything insightful to say, you're actually annoying. You're not challenging. So that's a big second failure path. And then the third one, yeah. And the the third one I would say is that you don't have effective sales managers who understand how to coach to those behaviors because some of that stuff, and this is the difference I think with, with some of the jolt behaviors is that um, some of the stuff like creating constructive tension, taking control of the sale, things like that, leading with a provocative insight, those are uncomfortable for a lot of salespeople. And it takes a lot of practice. It's a lot of trial and error. And it cre- it requires, absolutely requires a sales manager committed to behavioral coaching that can work with reps to get them better over time. If all those things are in place, though, you do see pretty good success rates. Hmm. Now, I would I would contrast this, though, with, with Jolt a little bit. I think there's two big differences with Jolt. One is... That challenger, I think, um, and this is not untrue, but I think a lot of people look at that and say, this is like a Cortez message, like burn the boats. Everything you right. did before is wrong. You got to replace it with this. And I think that that is why people, they love it, but they also hate it because they've invested a lot in some other approach. And now you're coming and saying, doing do something completely different. Um, Jolt is not like that. So Jolt, we, we have specifically argued is an overlay. So whether you're a challenger shop or you're a medic shop or you're a Sandler shop, it really doesn't matter. That is your playbook for beating the status quo. And you should you should seek absolute excellence in high performance around that playbook. But what you're not doing is dealing with the faux mu. You're not dialing mm-hmm. dialing down the fear and you need this second playbook, this Joel playbook. And it attaches to whatever you do today. So I find that revenue leaders and enablement leaders in particular really like that idea because they're like, oh, this is the next step in the journey. You're not telling me to burn the boats. You're telling me to to add this on and we'll get better. And so that is the message. Yeah. Then the other thing I would say is while the behaviors themselves, I think, are um, – they're, they're counterintuitive and counter to a lot of what the JOLT, a lot of what salespeople have been taught in their careers – I think they're actually easier for salespeople. You take the O, like offering a recommendation. Right. This is a, a good example. Uh, most salespeople out there um, are – they know what the thing is the customer should buy. They just don't tell them that that's what they should buy. And they feel like because they've been told to do it, if the customer's unsure what to do, go back and diagnose their needs and they'll figure it out on their own. Um, but what they don't fully understand is that's no help to the customer. Right. And if you know deep down that the customers of this type in this market, in this industry – with this use case, this is what they should buy. Then you should recommend that uh, that purchase to them, and that actually lowers the burden uh, for them. Moreover, yeah. I mean, people have observed recommendations in everyday life in all sorts mm-hmm. of contexts, sure. right? So it's not a foreign concept like insight uh, selling might might have been to a to a non challenger back in the day. It might be counterinstinctual, but it's not completely foreign. And so part of getting better at at Joel actually is about just repetition. Right, observation and repetition, and knowing to Matt's point, like what do I stop doing? What do I not do first? That becomes a really important element of of adopting some of these uh, overcoming indecision principles. And I think that recommendation, though, so yeah, Jolt does, as you said, acronym for yeah. judging a decision off your recommendation, limiting the exploration, and take risk off the table. Mm-hmm. On the off your your recommendation, I mean, I agree absolutely, um, but I think that. It has to be tied to 
my in my worldview and the way I've experienced it and so on is that you know, customers make a decision and they're doing their investigation is, is there's always one thing that's more important than all the others. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so if you can tie your recommendation to that one thing that has yeah. the most importance to the buyer and help them get that, then absolutely. And yeah. the fact is you have to know what that one thing is. For sure. And then sure. your recommendation becomes hugely powerful and a differentiator in many respects. Yeah. And what I, the other thing I would say is, that, you know, if we look at those the four those four behaviors you mentioned, Ted and I talk about this a lot, but they're not all equal in terms of their difficulty in pulling it off. I think right. the O is I chose an easy one, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, that's probably the easiest. I think the T, taking risk off the table, a lot of those things can be codified at the organizational level. So simple businesses, prorated refunds and money back guarantees and more complex businesses – Creative deal structuring, terms and conditions. Um, you know, creative for, deal structuring. I think that's one that's that's just not taught enough. Because I, I agree. I think there's such, a, there's such a movement, especially in the SaaS world, toward uh, conformity, mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is the process, is our playbook, so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, move with speed, and yep. Yeah, is the yeah. especially for startups. I mean, <laughs> creative deal making. What a huge yeah. differentiator and the way to take the well, risk off the table. Yeah. I, I wrote about one of my earlier books as I was, you know, operating as a you know, interim CRO for a company and, and yeah, you know, big company comes in, a company they'd wanted to get into for a long time, a big logo that hadn't had the chance and the customer wanted, you know, 10 systems installed, you know, within six months and, you know, talk to the CEO. I said, well, really, they, <laughs> that's too risky for them. Mm-hmm. Right. So offer to you put one in and you'll yeah. completely integrate it with their existing system. I said, yep. big competitors will all melt away because they all need to eat in bigger bites. Yep. That's yep. exactly what happens. Small yep. company, you can do that. Yeah. No, ab- absolutely. No, it's, a, it's a great example. And I think you're I think you're right. So I think that the T, the taking risk off the table is probably not left to their own devices. I think a lot of say it's not taught enough and a lot of salespeople wouldn't come up with these creative options naturally, but it is something that the organization can kind of figure out and equip salespeople to you know, put these techniques in their bags and teach them how to use them to de-risk the purchase. The other the other stuff like the J um, surfacing indecision mm-hmm. um, is trickier. And then I right. think the hardest one actually of the four is limiting the exploration and getting your customer to like stop trying to be an expert and start <laughs> trusting you as an expert, I think is, is actually the hardest one because a lot of the what it requires to do that it runs very counter to the way salespeople today operate. Yeah. So what's, what's your advice on how do you help your buyer limit their exploration? Yeah. So that one, you know, we, um, the data is very clear that, uh, overindulgence of customer information requests, Mm -hmm. you know, additional demos, additional reference calls, longer POCs, different POCs, POCs in different parts of the business, things like that. (laughs) Um, what, what's interesting is average performers love this stuff because what for them, that's activity and that indicates yep. progress. Yep. So yep. it's something I could put in the CRM. And when my boss asked me where that deal is, I could say, oh, we're setting up another reference call. I got an update. <laughs> I got an update. Here's the update. It's moving. <laughs> uh, right. But high performers know it beyond a certain point, there's a natural learning curve, but beyond a certain point, that's just a customer who's engaging in analysis and research for research's sake. And mm-hmm. they engage in analysis paralysis. And the win rate difference between like complete indulgence um, uh, versus actually limiting the exploration is is very different in our analysis. But the question is, how do you do it? Because Jedi mind tricking your way to victory is just saying, no, no Andy, you don't read to, need to read that Gardner Magic Quadrant. That's not the Magic Quadrant you were looking for. <laughs> like it doesn't work in sales. So how do we do it? And I, I think one, you know, one of the more overused terms, obviously, um, in sales is is 
we got to be a trusted advisor. We always say this to our salespeople, and that's what we aspire to, mm. but we off, we don't often give them very concrete guidance around how to do it. And so if I were to break it down, I would say the first thing is building the trust. So we come into the relationship, we've got to understand we are in a hole with the customer, even if we've never spoken to them before, because of what Ted said earlier, they have been burned in the past and they right. carry the baggage of all those bad interactions and bad purchases to the table with you. Yep. They are they are wired to not trust you because they believe you are compensated to oversell them, hide all the bad news, not share all the customers who hate you, <laughs> like not air the dirty laundry, overpromise and underdeliver. And that is if that is their mindset. So there are specific moments we found in the sale where high performers will seek to bridge that trust gap. Mm -hmm. It comes across when high performers tell uh, customers, you know what, I know you want to buy the premium version of the solution. I actually think the basic version is going to be just fine for your needs. We can always grow later into right. the premium version. You know what, I know you're really interested in that integration, but I got to be honest with you, it's not quite ready for prime time yet. I don't want to promise that and have you anticipate it's going to work day one because in our experience with the early adopters, it's not working you know, fluidly and seamlessly. Or even... Based on what you're looking for, while we'd love to do business with you, I actually think that some of our competitors are better at this than we are. So, I, again, I don't want to steer the wrong way. We think we're really good at this stuff. They're really good at that stuff. Mm -hmm. Based on what you're saying, I don't know if we're the right partner for you. Like those are moments. That's, where that's the one where all sales leaders just winced. Like, oh, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> or, or even, even is one you said before, Andy. But um, you know, the customer says we want to get we want the million dollar all singing all dancing enterprise wide rollout saying you know okay but i think actually in our experience what would be better for you is to roll this out in a single business unit in a limited use case way let's get some runs on the yep. board and let's expand from there so sell more over time but sell less up front also makes sales leaders wince but but the reality is those moments teach the customer that this is somebody who's not trying to put one over on me, but has my, their goal is to get me to a good decision, irrespective of whether it's you know, buying from them, buying from right. a competitor, you know, doing nothing. But that is their goal. It's not to oversell me. So that's the trust piece. Then the advisor piece, I think if we were to get down to um, specifics, what you've got to do is be in a position, you, it's not all well and good to have the trust, but you've got to be in position to advise your customer as well. And what that means, what we found is a few things. One is owning the flow of information. So high performers were much more likely to do their own demos, even mm -hmm. in the same company, yep. do their yep. own demos, carry that product conversation deeper and longer before pulling in the clown car of experts. Mm -hmm. And it often wasn't a clown car. It was, hey, I brought along Andy. He's the head of product. But what you didn't see high performers do is what average performers do. Average performers would say, well, brought along Andy is our head of product. No, you had some questions about the product. Andy, take it away. They don't do uh, high performers don't do that for two reasons. One is Andy hates that because Andy's the head of product, not the salesperson. But the other reason is that it this this interesting thing happens in that moment, which is you get delegated down to the person you sound like, and the high performers yep. know that. And they're what they would have done is sat down with you before the call and said, "Look, customers got these specific questions." I need you to answer those questions, but I don't want you to take more than 10 minutes. And what we're also going to do is tell the customer, you only can stay on for like 15 minutes and then I'm going to cut you loose. I need them to come to me and see me as an expert here. Yes. So it doesn't mean they don't rely on on support, but the Absolutely. way they do it is very different. Um, they don't want to be seen as a glorified admin in the eyes of the, the customer. Um, and then the, the other piece I throw out there, uh, Andy, is um, you saw this in the way they handle objections. So um, very, very telling. So the first thing I'd point out Ted knows exact data, but um, objections happen all the time in sales. Um, average performers ignore a lot of them, and I think they hope that like I'm just going to pretend I don't I didn't hear that, and then it'll just go away. <laughs> High performers address almost 100 percent of the stated objections, mm -hmm. but they do more than that. So the 
the first thing they do differently is they listen for signs of implicit non-acceptance. So right. this is the difference when I ask you, you know, Andy, did I answer your question or address your your concern? The difference between you saying you nailed it and you saying, mm, I guess so. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're an average performer, those are one and the same and you just keep going. If you're a high performer, quite literally, the high performers will stop the conversation. Say, Andy, I, I don't want to read into this, but I'm, I'm gauging that there's maybe a little bit more to your concern yep. or maybe I didn't nail it. So can, let's let's talk about it. Let's Because let's get that co- uh, conversation on the table or that concern so we can deal with it. And the other thing you found is they would proactively suggest objections or mm-hmm. anticipate objections before the customer even articulated them. So, you know, any other customers like you, when they ask that question, here's actually their real concern that they're worried about is, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that going through your head at all? Because if you if it is, that's totally cool because other customers worry about the same thing. It's totally okay. So we can, yeah. we can talk about that, you know. So those things, doing those things, building the trust, building that credibility earns you the right to call a stop to the exploration and practice a little bit of radical candor in those moments where the customer is asking for the third demo or the fifth reference call mm-hmm. to say, you know what, we've we spent a lot of time together and I want to be a good steward of your time. And I hope you trust me enough now for me to tell you that is not going to address your concerns and you're not going to learn anything new from that than you've already learned. And maybe there's a different way we can uh, we can get after that. Maybe there's a different way we can address that concern. Yep. Like um, uh, let's talk about it. Very cool. Yeah. No, I mean, I th- <laughs> In all those things. I mean, it's, it's, you know, one of the key things in there with limiting the exploration is, and you talk about the top performers, is they move beyond this idea of knowing something to understanding it. Yeah. Which is, is critical, yeah. right? Because they can't be that advisor if they don't really understand what the buyer is saying. And unfortunately, with the way discovery is handled and, and taught is it becomes like a survey. I've gathered this information. I don't understand the context of why it's important to the buyer. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. That's well I think put. they also sometimes lose sight of of how much like what is their source of authority and how much right. they do know about the experience that their customers have and the mm-hmm. products that they're that they're selling. And so go right. back to the area where you where you do or could or should have some degree of of expertise. We talk in our our training that we've built around like just your one goal should be just don't get caught flat footed. Mm-hmm. Right. Like just try not to get caught flat footed. And when you do get caught flat footed, like make sure you go f- hunt down that information <laughs> yeah. next time such that that doesn't happen again. It's a pretty simple goal. But, you know, I think one that can can make a make somebody improve you know pretty quickly over time. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Well, unfortunately, we've, we've reached the end. But, um, yeah, I'd love to have you come back and talk more about it because it's I love new perspectives. Um, so if people want to learn more about. Yeah, the book, your training, you guys, uh, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I, I would uh, steer them to uh, jolteffect.com. That's, we got a ton of stuff on there, a lot more about the research, about uh, how it was done, some free tools you can download. Um, in fact, um, uh, in the book, we link to a couple of uh, downloadable tools. Those are all on the website. Um, there's a bunch of free content on there. And to your point, there's lots of more information about stuff that we're doing to help companies impart these skills and develop these skills with their salespeople, but also uh, partners that we've enlisted who are um, carrying the baton farther down the field than we as a small team are equipped to do. So all right. that stuff is is on there. Perfect. Ted, anything else? No, I think that sums it up. Sums it up. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. Great thanks, to be here. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guests today, Matt Dixon and Ted McKenna, for sharing their insights with us. If you enjoyed this episode, again, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much for everyone for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. 
good selling, everyone. 